We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Some of the initial uh, food writers were a little hard on them for having a, at the time, a $27 hamburger. But I didn't see it that way. I saw it as, okay, instead of a $90 dry-aged steak, you now have this $27 burger that has the same dry-aged steak experience. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Pat Lafrida is one of the world's most celebrated butchers and sells ground beef, strip steaks, and ribeyes to over 1,000 New York City restaurants alone. On this episode, we talk about the birth of the boutique burger blend, tracing its lineage back to the Mineta Tavern, and dig deep into the meat business. We also talk about Pat's own personal way to cook a steak, roast a chicken, and dress a hamburger with only a couple very specific choices. It was really fun getting to know the one and only Pat LaFrida, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Pat LaFrida, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you, man? Good morning. How are you? Well, good morning to you. It's uh, it's 10 a.m. Uh, on, a, on a Thursday, and you just got off work. Yes, I work through the night. That's when the magic happens, so That's... Uh, that'll never end. So, um, yeah, this is um, this would be like 10 p.m. to most, yep. I would think. Do you? I'm not sure if you drink. Do you do a little uh, little shot before bed at the end of a hard day, as many, <laughs> many like to enjoy? No, no, no. I, 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 I like to drink, but on social occasions, not, yeah. not during the week. Well, I want to I wanna first ask you about burger blends, because before you were here selling meat, to New York. There wasn't a boutique burger blend. And I want to get a sense from you, Pat, what was the start of the boutique burger blend, meaning you actually are thinking about ratio, you're thinking about dry aging in the beef, you're thinking more of it than just beef in the hamburger. First part and second part is, did you really, did you expect the hamburger? Did you know it was going to be this big in New York? I never did think it was going to be this big, but you really have to look at your the DNA of your company or what you do doesn't have to be your company. What is it that you do and what is the DNA that builds that and that dictates how you uh, carry yourself, how you perform? The DNA of Lafrida was always, when it came to burgers, my grandfather had this strict rule of, of not using any of the junk, not meeting the trimmings and whatnot. But to control a burger, you needed to have the same ratio of blends of whole cuts um, for Every time. Now he did. He had one blend, and and back then in my grandfather's time, it was okay. What's this company? What, what does that company's burger meat taste like? What about this company? What about Lafrida? Uh, so each meat company really had one burger that yeah. represented that company. And in order to get a product that's consistent, because again, it is a repetitive business, and you have to make the same people happy. Those consumers keep coming back, and they can be fickle. Um, we decided very early on, I, I didn't decide anything. I was, it was dictated to mm -hmm. me by my dad, yeah. Pat the, the second to me, Pat the third, this is how we do things in, in our business and in our family. This is, we are consistent and we don't take, 
uh, any shortcuts. In terms of the actual blend itself, when you're talking about the definitive Lafrida blend before there was the actual boutique, what, how do you describe it? What's the, what's the blend like? Blend is sweet in that American domestic beans. So uh, it's amazing I have to say American domestic yeah. because we can import meat from around the world. Once we grind it here, we can call it domestic. No, no. Product that's been raised and grazed in the United States. Um, it's all fed grass. It's mostly finished on grain and corn. And it is the best tasting and sweetest meat that, that um, out of all of those categories of grass fed and um, imported products. So also when you use whole cuts of meat, you're getting a steak experience in an economy cut. And the burger is, is ultimately the, um, the, the economy cut. Mm -hmm. You know, when there are no more economy cuts, there are no more cuts to take off. You've taken off the hanger, the flat iron, the, the terrace major uh, off these side muscles, off side muscles, and you've made steaks out of them, center cut entrees with them. What are you left with? You're left with a lot of trimmings. And so that, that makes the burger the, the ultimate uh, economy cut. But when you use whole cuts of meat, it's a little bit more difficult. And I knew early on if I wanted to grow my business and I wanted to give, since there are many restaurants that where there are two or three on the same street, those restaurants don't want to all buy from the same meat company. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I needed to make a different experience for, for each of those if, they, if I expected them to buy from me. Right. And, and it, it really worked. And it was, it was twofold because at the same time, I wanted, I wanted to make blends based off my grandfather's principles, but I wanted the, the input of the chef as far as what steaks did they like? What, what flavors do they cook with that uh, would resonate and, and really portray the chef and the restaurant? And I was able to do that in an economical way by using, you know, if a chef told me ribeye, mm -hmm. I would use a lot of chuck roll because that, that it, like it's, it was a similar, it's the same style. muscle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the same muscle and it's just where, where it's cut off, but it continues through the, you know, through the back. Right. And sure. We're not going to put ribeye steaks into the burger blend. However, we are going to use the continuation of that longissimus and spinalis muscle that goes into, mm -hmm. into the front chuck and cut that out and make sure that, you know, the whatever ratio, and we have several hundred now. That's amazing. You have one over 100 ratios. Uh, we have, uh, well over 200. Your, your blend book. I'm sure you have a book or, or some We way. have um, several <laughs> books. Yeah. And it um, really because there are so many different combinations of, yeah. of cuts. But the one thing that has not changed is that it's still whole, whole cuts. And those ratios, we live by them. And then you have this other complexity of die size. Yeah. So how coarse do you want the burger? You know, that's, you know, uh, when what size do you want the burger? So, okay, great. You want a, a, an eight-ounce burger. What is the diameter of the bun? Exactly. Well, Pat, why do you need to know that? Well, because I want to make it an inch further than that. Or wider than that, and this way, when it cooks, 
It'll line it, up exactly it, right. Line up or maybe hang over just a little bit. So who doesn't we, want it to hang over a little bit? Exactly. And <laughs> the bread, the bread's very important. So the bun is it's vital, but it's the first thing. It's the first thing you pick up, and the, you you almost start to judge the burger before you even you, get the you, first bite. You certainly do in the age of Instagram. I mean, yeah, you you're do. judging it all the way it looks. Come on, you're let's right. get real. And so, but you don't want that burger to disappear in that bread. Like, listener, let's pause for a second. Just like think about what Pat just said and and think about um, the way we look at burgers. Because what Pat has done over time, and I want to go back to the early to mid-aughts, when before this, the Black Label Burger was one that was important to to, uh, the way burgers were perceived in media. But but writers like Josh Ozersky, who I want to talk about, Nick Solaris, um, and many folks working at Grocery Eater, Village Voice, Robert Sietzema, all these guys were writing about burger blends, and you had just articulated something that's important. It's talking to the chef about bun choice, about grind size, about blend and ratio. It was not like this in 2001, 2002. There was nothing like this. So we as a culture think about burgers now very, very like sophisticated, in a sophisticated way. But you revolutionized this with your dialogue. How did you start? Let's go back to the Black Label. How did that come about? Well, the Black Label was developed um, right at the outset of an an economical hard time of 2007. And I had always wanted to play around with getting a dry-aged flavor into a burger, but without having to pay for a dry-aged steak. And that experience was, I was able to accomplish that by by using New York strip steak once the center cuts ended. So we still had the dry-aged back 18% has... Many call it a vein steak, but it really is a nerve that runs through. It's the sciatica nerve that runs through that cut, and it's very tough. But not if you're able to make chopped beef out of it. And we played around with some different uh, proportions of dry aged, and some and 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 also so that's fresh meat to dry aged, and then also how dry aged: thirty days, forty five, ninety. So um, when I was just developing that. A, a chef came in to see me, Riyad Nasser, yep. and the guy's a legend, and I had him taste it, and he turned around and said to me, what would this cost? I told him, and he said, done, but I'm the only one to get it. That's And that's Riyad's choice or your choice? Riyad's. Riyad was like dictating those terms. Did Keith McNally have anything to do with this dialogue? I'm sure, I mean... Uh, Riyadh was the boots on the ground, right. you know, but, but that was always a, a team. Um, so, but I wasn't privy to that until the Frank Bruni, um, review, review came. Right. Of which restaurants? Let's give it clarity. Minetta, Minetta Tavern. Yeah, exactly. So Min- Minetta and Bruni and then Riyadh and you talking about exclusivity and I'm sure Keith is like the puppet master of this whole thing. Of course. <laughs> um, but, but so... Uh, Frank Bruni had written about it, I think it was about six months after it opened. Here's another great thing um, about that story is that Riyadh came in to see me, I think four to four to five months before the restaurant opened. Um, that's key, right? Uh, so he was picking out meat that he wanted me to put up on the shelves, on the dry-age shelves, to have ready for when he was going to open four months from now. Now, in my dad's time... Uh, I don't think they had as much trust in chefs because 
the way our, our industry works is that we pay for our beef uh, three about three days after it's invoiced to us. Mm. It's still on the truck coming from Kansas. So, you know, it, it's it's very hard to then take that meat and put it on the shelf for two months. And then, you know, restaurants usually pay between 14 and 60 days later. And it's it's a big investment to me. Mm-hmm. And But it's one that that when you see the chef come in months before the restaurant's going to open, hey, that that we're that guy's serious, and we're going to be serious, and we're going to devote ourselves to to that cause because they care. Yeah, I mean, it's a fragile industry, and and certainly many restaurants go under in that first year, and and can't pay the pay those bills, and you you are the one who's who's gonna gonna have to suffer the consequences and. Back to Riyadh, and you're talking about blend and putting dry-aged beef into a hamburger. Um, you said you had always wanted to do that as a goal. What did Riyadh, what was he able to do on the on the culinary side in terms of the way it was prepared, the bun? Because that really, the Black Label Burger, to this day, is probably the world's most famous burger. Maybe outside of the McDonald's Big Mac. Sure. I would, or maybe the Whopper, but I would say the Black Label is up there. Yeah, you know, the economic hardship came right as they opened and some <laughs> right. of the some of the initial uh, food writers were a little hard on them for having a at the time a $27 hamburger but they also had an alternative they had a, a, an amazing short rib blend so if you didn't want that that dry aged flavor and uh, that was about 10 or 12 dollars less but i didn't see it that way i saw it as okay instead of a $90 dry aged steak you now have this $27 burger that has the same um, dry-aged steak experience. So at, at the end of, uh, of year one, we had an after-action review with myself and, th- and the entire Minute Tavern team. And they said, Pat, guess how many um, Black Label burgers we sold over short rib burgers? Well... I said, you, you sold 13,500. Like, how do you know that? Are you in our books? I'm like, guys, I sell you your meat. It's an eight ounce <laughs> burger. So they're like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a good so, story. I mean, I mean it, it's it's remarkable to think about the the scale of just one restaurant, but you, you you how many counts do you have in just Manhattan right now? Just just Manhattan, what are you talking about? About a thousand. 1,000 accounts. I would say in the five boroughs, we have about a thousand. We have about 1,600 active uh, restaurants that we serve every day in the New York City in 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 five boroughs and yes in the tri-state about sixteen hundred in the five boroughs about a thousand that's incredible so you think about that's a lot lot going on and I want to get in the day to day of what you're what it's like working in the locker but I briefly want to let it just talk about Zersky because he wrote a book about the hamburger he's but of course he we knew Josh as somebody who wrote about whole um, animal butchery and appreciation for what you do about dry aging so what do you want our listener to take. Um, away from the Josh Zersky legacy. Josh was someone very much like Nick Solaris is and was. Right, Nick as well, uh, who who is still writing. To, I mean, right. Josh unfortunately passed away in 2016, and we're, we're referring to him in the past since for that reason, to be clear. But yeah. He, he was, he, he became a, a very close friend in a very short amount of time. He was one of the few, one of the few food writers that actually asked permission to come into the facility shadow me, shadow my butchers. They all knew him by name. And you just don't get that. So to to be able to see what's going on behind the scenes is amazing. Adam Platt did the same. Um, So 
when you have these great food writers, and it's was never because it was about us. I mean, no one wrote about the butchers, right? And we didn't, we weren't looking for that. We just, we knew that if our customers won, we we win. If they fail, we fail. And the mentality in my in my industry before then was very cutthroat. And if if a purveyor could get, you know, if they could kill someone on the price for, let's say, lamb racks during Easter, they did that. Mm. We did the opposite. We were always fair, and we never exploited any situation like that. Um, but Josh came in, and he, 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 it was, it, he, it was, he was a quick learner. Of course, the guy was a, a genius, and he learned, and he wanted to learn about every cut of steak. And I cannot tell you how many blends of of, of burger meat that I made for him over the over the years that that um, I got to enjoy with him, and it was always instant feedback because you know he just went right home and cooked it, yeah. uh, probably no bun at all, and as you should. Yeah, I mean, I, let's get real, <laughs> no bun at all. Let's taste the meat. You know, I, I, I one of his expressions, which I, I use to this day, was it, it, after. Um, eating way too much food in a restaurant, you know, going outside to take an air bath, I thought was hilarious. Yeah, you a know, real Josh Ozerski, um yeah. term. Yeah, he would he would take his button down off. He would have a, a tank top underneath, and I was like, Josh, okay, then we're going a little too far. <laughs> you know? He yeah. goes, Pat, let's go to the facility. It's thirty six degrees in there. He's like, okay. he's. I hope I hope there's a time and place when we can we can really get into the Ozerski legacy. Um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, let's go to the locker. What's you, you were there at six p.m. last night? What what's it like in your facility? Where's it at? What, what, what is it in Jersey? I, I think you said you just yeah, opened so up we, a place. We were in Manhattan for ninety five years. Exactly. It's right. Really not the best place for food production. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, condos kind of win over right. <laughs> the, the, that equation sometimes. So we moved right over or I should say under the um, Hudson River into North Bergen, New Jersey. So we are just as the crow flies, I think maybe three and a half miles uh, from from the center of Manhattan. So great location-wise, we bought a, a, a building and we built it. We knocked everything down that was there and we built it uh, from the ground up. And then we did it again 10 years later. From so that was 2010, and then in 2020 we did the same thing. It was a little thing that got in our way, yeah. and um, so uh, when all restaurants closed, which was 95% of my business on March 16th, 2020, we were only 85% done with the second facility, which yeah. we desperately needed for space. So finishing that facility fell on my lap after um, my dad couldn't. You know, we didn't want to expose him to a potential risk of of getting sick. So I worked all night uh, overseeing production, and then all day overseeing um, a job site in which many were sheltering at home in place. Mm -hmm. But we were put under presidential mandate on the same day, on the sixteenth. So we were given a federal order not to close. And I would face federal prison time if we were to have closed as part of the critical um, um, food supply chain. You were on a list and someone from Washington called you. We're inspected. So yeah. we have federal inspectors in our building every every um, every day. Yeah. So to restaurateurs or chefs, that means that it would be like the health department mm -hmm. coming every day. Yeah. Uh, but that's 
keeps our industry very safe, yep. and uh, the USDA does a great job of that. So they didn't really have to uh, call or send a letter. Like, they were there anyway. Yeah. Pat, we need a meeting. Mm. And um, so we were given that notice. We would never have closed anyway, but it made things a little bit more real. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, I, I said, I asked, are my staff members also um, under mandate? No. Mm. Now, Hmm. It didn't matter. Interesting. Ma how it, does that work then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. How do you uh, how do you actually uh, butcher without the butchers? And Pat, get that other facility running. The, the administration wants yeah. everything running. They don't want any food shortages, which, you know, there are those times during your work year that something different happens. And it's almost fun. Like there's a sense of urgency there. And I have to say, like, I, I, I think it was born for those moments because to me, that's the most fun I ever had was making sure that everyone and anyone that I could possibly get to had meat. When, when, when consumers were on lines for five, year, five hours to find out that there was no food inside the grocery mm -hmm. store, that broke my heart. And we, we had 50 trucks. Mm. So that, that, our fleet is 50. So we took most of them and distributed them. We, we, we dispersed them throughout the the, the tri-state to whatever chef would want one. And we retained 12. And we used those 12 to resupply those trucks that had separated uh, separate units for the refrigeration just so that chef could, if they wanted, they could sell meat to the general public mm -hmm. as long as they didn't gouge, which no one did. That's good. It was awesome. And then we felt that was our way to reduce panic on yeah. on those lines like that was what before this whole thing got political which happened very quickly um i don't think i've watched the news since that yeah that, that first day i remember <laughs> it going sideways but um that that was the mentality that's what we thought like it was for us to make sure that we could the pandemic may not kill us but panic will um yeah and we that, that's the message you got from the government i would imagine too that type of like the panic is what we now know avoid. Yeah. No, no, that, that really, I saw that happening yeah. quickly. Yeah. Especially with the influx of phone calls of very affluent friends that, uh, all of my friends, but, but especially to hear the desperation, mm. I, I told everyone there's no meat shortage. Take what you need. Don't take any more. Mm -hmm. Don't freeze too much. It was the first time in my life that the unit of measure when 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 civilians were ordering meat from us was given in inches. Mm. So, hey, uh, my freezer's 48 by 20 by 16. I, don't, I need you to fill that We need that to space. fill it. We need to go to the, to the level. Okay. Yeah. But just to remind you, there's no meat shortage. Yeah. If that freezer goes bad... Which mm. it, that happened a few times. There was power out. There were plenty of power outages during this time period. You lose everything. Yeah. When, when we when we knew the meat industry is it's it's a it's more efficient than it's ever been, and that has to do with distribution also. I throughout the, that entire period, I was short pork tenders. I believe for two hours. Wow. Before that truck came, I mean, yeah, that was it. 
uh, fulfillment rate, I would say, is a, was 100%. It's remarkable that when you talk it through, when you talk about the, how you handle the pandemic and, and subsequent, it's amazing um, that that you were able to keep a level head and, and keep the city running. Um, back to my original question, though, I want to hear when you're walking into these, this facility, what, what is what is it like? Take us there. Um, do you have, um, you know, are we talking about whole animals is hanging and, and you're butchering? I mean, what's what's the scale like? The future of, of meat does not include hanging anything. Love that. So, I've um, heard that. Hooks and, and, and rails above your head that can be dangerous and also the rust peels off of them. We When we built our facilities, we got away from that. That was my dad's generation and um, everything comes in a combo bin. So it's the most efficient way to transport meat. And it t- took it took away a lot of the danger, um, but a meat facility is a dangerous place. Um, I I discovered a bandsaw that was impossible to get more than a few stitches if the worst accident happened. Mm. Very expensive, made for the wood industry, but it's another example of um, that operator. So at six p.m., that's when we start production. Any bandsaw op- any of our bandsaw operators, and we have about twenty one of these machines. They actually have a cord that comes from the machine. It goes into their um, their butcher's coat, and it, it sits on their bare love handle, mm-hmm. and it picks up the electric current that we naturally have going through our body. So if their hand was to touch the bandsaw blade, that finishes the circuit, and a pneumatic brake slams in point zero zero two seconds. Meaning the 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 pulse of the bandsaw operator, if it changes, if there's like a change. Not the pulse. Uh, but we have we have an electric current that naturally flows through us. We you finish you you complete the, the the loop. If you were to touch the bandsaw blade, it sets off this pneumatic break and it stops wow. immediately. I see. That's if your hand touches it. But if um, before you touch it, that's like if your hand's under the meat and it can't see your glove. The green gloves that we we use um, they pick up. It's the only color that's not really in meat. So every other color is. So when you run, when when the um, the sensor sees the green, it also knocks off the um, the, new, the pneumatic brake and stops instantly. Yeah. That idea of getting rid of that part, the most dangerous part of cutting, um, I it, it's it was expensive. I, it, we didn't even look at that. Uh, yeah, but it ultimately pays for itself too. I mean, you could uh, as altruism there. You want your staff to be safe, obviously, but there's obviously an efficiency, and you're you're not having accidents, and that's a bad that's bad for business. I'm the one saying this. You're not. You didn't lead with that, but that's yeah, kind of the way it works. It's it's worse than that. It's it's bad for morale. Yeah, exactly. And when you have someone, so working these hours all night. Yeah, we're one big family, and there, there are a lot of companies that may say that, but. I think the biggest comment from someone taking a tour is, wow, Pat, you have that many people here working throughout the night. I don't hear um, fighting, arguing, raising of voices. No, it's it's this family. It's like this is everyone's living room. This is everyone's Mm -hmm. dining room. But we we get the job done. And the last thing you want to do is – be on that ride to the hospital with someone. That's interesting. Let's let's talk about the farms. You you mentioned Kansas and and you work with farms all over the the country. What's your relationship with farms? Are you are you out 
side of New York visiting the farms that you're buying from? We have 125 different growers for beef. They're spread beef out. alone, and you do, you do everything else. Yes, yeah. beef alone. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yes, we try to to visit with as many folks as we can. We have procurement people that do it for us. And then that product is then shipped to a USDA facility that that oversees, as we now say, harvesting. Yeah. Uh, harvesting of the animal. So, um, but we, we maintain that relationship. The, 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 the growers need to know what to grow. They need to know that you, when, when that animal, when it's at 22 months of age and it's ready to, to go to the harvest facility, that there's a demand for it. So I'm usually about four or five months out on my guaranteed purchases, my purchase orders. You know, so I, I am um, not bidding, but I have product that is put to the side to me, uh, put put to the side for me. Uh, but those that product still got four legs and is walking around. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to have that much diversity in where the product's coming from in the United States because different sectors, different areas will have tornadoes, droughts, floods, disease. Try to tell a New York City chef that, sorry, we don't have steaks for a month. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> and at the price that you're, you're, the range that your sales folks are, are kind of promising them, essentially. I mean, they can't structure their menus if the price is going to triple. My, yeah, my favorite, are the, are the, the growers are the best because yeah. they don't seek fame. I, I, I love when a chef will ask me, Pat, uh, what farm is this from? I'm going to tell you the name of the farm. I'm going to give you the farmer's phone number. You're going to call them. Um, but don't ask me about the website. They don't have a website. I'll tell yeah. you right. <laughs> right. Why is that? They don't want it. They want it. They, that's what they do. They raise animals according to the raising and finishing protocols that we lay out for the accolades that we need to hit. So the great thing about the USDA is that whatever claim you have on a package that's from the USDA, that claim has been confirmed and traced back to the yeah. grower um, to make sure that whatever claim you're putting on there is consistent and and true. Um, it's jail time. If, yeah. if, if, if it's serious business, where, where, where are we, uh, where, the, where do these farmers located? And you mentioned Kansas. Is it, is it Texas as well? Is it Nebraska? The warmer States like Texas and Florida, they're great at, um, the first phase of, of an animal, the birth. Right. So the warmer months don't yield a finished product of very, very good at all because, um, you need some cold temperature to get the intramuscular marbling that we're looking for for the higher grades of beef. Mm -hmm. So they migrate them through um, a, a complex system to get and finish the animals up further north in the Midwest. I see. Um, that's where the best beef in the world comes from. You could say that, so four, only 4% 4 of what, the, what America grows falls into the prime category. And then you could say, well, Wagyu is a grade that is mostly in that prime or above category. Sure, it is. Different breed and very good. Not very tasty, but very popular. Uh, we we carry four different, you know, from four different growers of Wagyu. And then to include, it's the only imported beef that we sell yeah. is some 
Wagyu from Japan. Yeah, so real Japanese Wagyu, not American Wagyu. Right. And uh, the, the marbling is intense. Sometimes it's too much. Yeah. Because you can't cut an American-style steak with, you know, A5 Japanese Wagyu. Yeah. I myself can't finish it. It's just too much fat. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting topic. I've, I've tapped into it with Daniel Holz from the book Food IQ that we wrote. We have a whole chapter about it. I think it's really important to talk about the different levels of, of meat, but I, w- I don't want to burn the conversation. Sure. We could go on for hours, but I, I have a few more questions. You know, in terms of uh, the way um, the, you know, inflation has changed the cost of meat, uh, especially in the past 18 months, how has that worked with you and your dialogue with your chefs and then their dialogue with customers because you go to the grocery store and just look at the meat and it's like double the price it used to be. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It really is. Beef prices rising or meat prices rising creates um, some misconceptions as if we have something to do with that or is it the beef packer or is it the grower no, it's meat inflation. Everything has gone up. Um, our transportation in the country is getting better. But private carriers became very independent. Mix that with high diesel fuel prices last year. Yeah. It was a nightmare. So to get product, what would normally cost $1,500 to move that product from one part of the country to the other was costing $9,000, $10,000. Hear that? That's a, that's almost 10x in terms of transportation. That is that is remarkable. And you don't see an increase of 10x on meat. You do not, of um, course. And, and, and you said like in a grocery store, the price of meat, the price of everything. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so um, I, I, I only stress that because... Hearing uh, the administration blame meat for all of grocery going up, it's ridiculous. Um, there, you know, there were there was no other industry that I'm aware of that was put under mandate to stay open through all of this, through the unknown. Now we look back and we say, "Oh, it's no big deal, right?" Think about when we didn't know what was happening. You know. You guys still have to go to work. The first responders can't go to work unless they have food. Mm-hmm. So you have the, you're there before the first responders. Um, and then also our meat inspectors from the USDA, they were present also. I'll give them credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, um, so, so all of that, we knew that was going to make prices rise. We still have no shortages. And I think that's what keeps prices from do, hitting that 10X, where, uh, where growers are, are keeping up with pace, with the pace of demand, but demand for beef has never been higher. We could talk about lab meat and we could talk about um, other alternative proteins, which I'm not against. Any any form of protein to me, great. You heard but, it here. But, That's interesting. But what will the consumer think? Because right now they don't like it. And But Pat, double-digit growth. Right. There's never been more of a demand for beef than there is right now. So in that regard, the beef industry doesn't even look at that. Myself as a meat purveyor, I have to make sure that I carry whatever my consumers, whatever my customers want me to carry. Um, Sure, I'll procure it for them, but um, I'll give them my point of view. And, but it's really about what it, what their consumers want. And um, so when I say I'll procure it, uh, that means I need to 
identify the best in, in its class, I need to buy it and stock it mm -hmm. and have the confidence that we're going to sell it because everything has a shelf life. And our our meat normally turns in two or three days. It's 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 already out the door again. Yeah. Besides what we dry age, so um, it's it's a it's a bit complicated. But no, I. I what, what were you saying about alternative meat? I mean, I wanted to get into that. For, but first question is, um, why is the demand so high? Why? What's the why there? Because it is a, a, it is framed against the alternative meat boom that happened. I would believe in 2022 was probably the peak of it. It's really died. If you look at like stock prices for Impossible, it's really down. And, and we've kind of maybe moved on from those. I'm not a huge fan of those personally. Um, you, you, you said you're, you're different in a way, which is surprising. But um, yeah, like what's, what's, what's up with this high demand in meat? I was the first distributor of Impossible yeah. um, in the Northeast. <laughs> That's so amazing. <laughs> I, I, you know, we, we're forward thinking and we, yeah. we, we want to stay that way. But whenever you challenge an American as to something they may not be able to do, but there's so much misinformation out there like grass-fed is better for the environment, it's better for humans. When now that we know that the longer an animal lives, um, and if it takes four or five times the amount of time to get to that same weight as something that's grass-fed as opposed to grain-fed, hey, maybe the grain-fed was better. So that's why I don't really follow when you hear most scientists, okay, great. There are many scientists, they have a lot of opinions, they conflict with each other constantly. Where does that leave me? I, I need to make sure I have, you know, I, I'm sustainable. At the same time, I'm carrying what my consumers want. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the demand for beef is high because people, it brings attention to it. And Americans, I mean, we're, this is land of the free. Um, consumers want to eat what they want to eat mm -hmm. and what they feel comfortable in eating. And there'll be a time when when alternative proteins get better and they won't be seen as, you know, uh, lab meat, but but we're not there yet. We're not there. I, I see room for all of it. I, I'm not a huge fan of the culinary side of Impossible. Of course, I'm into the the philosophy behind it because I think we do need to seek out alternative proteins sure. for, for our planet. But um, on the culinary side, there's nothing that beats, um, you know, a dry-aged uh, ribeye or uh, an 80-20 blend of ground chuck. I mean, there, it really is um, a one-of-one one kind of protein. Um, we haven't really talked about, like, the culinary side. I really just want to get a sense of three things. How do you cook a steak? How do you cook a burger? And how do you cook a whole chicken, Pat? I would say heat on all three. <laughs> that would be good. Though, <laughs> right? I mean, I, a tartare or UK, Korean UK, raw beef is pretty freaking good. I love this. I've been, I, I, I've been eating raw beef since I was 10. <laughs> My dad gave me my first bit of uh, of tartare right out of the grinder, and it was the best thing I ever ate. Um, I still remember that I was standing on a milk crate, and he had when he handed it to me because I was I was that short. Um, hmm. But with a burger and with with steak, you really want high heat before you ever touch the grill, the cooking surface. We, we want a sear. So I like I don't many will think oh Pat you, your meat black and blue or super rare. No, medium rare. I, I definitely believe, I uh, I definitely know that the great flavors that go into all that beef, really you could taste them best 
in when the beef is in its rawest form. So if you're going to cook it, what does that mean? Maybe medium rare for me, um, at the very most medium. I, many At many tables, I'll get someone to lean over and whisper in my ear, Pat, by the way, hmm. I eat my meat well done. Great. <laughs> like, why are you telling me? And I want you yeah. order it the way you feel comfortable because, again, that's part of our family culture is – let me ask you about chicken. Are you are you are you are you are you doing chicken a certain way? Uh, yes, in in what I in in what parts I, I eat. So I I I'm dark meat. Yeah. all the way. I, As I, any wise person. I, yeah, I I'll I can make chicken cutlets. I can make, um, you know, just I can make any any chicken dish that's that is normally. Um, Utilizing white meat, I, I I need the dark meat because it's the only thing that's got flavor to me, yeah. and it's very forgiving on. It sure on, is. You on, can roast the yeah. hell out of a thighs and the bone. Back to the burger. Is there a case for going above eighty twenty blend? Yes, of okay. course. <laughs> uh, so when you say eighty twenty, you're referring to um, a burger that's only described by its lean to fat ratio, correct? Yes, exactly. Lean to fat. So lean eighty twenty percent fat. So when I, I I suggest not to not to base a burger on that. You have a lot of 90-10 blends out there that seem very healthy. Um, those fats are, for the most part, going to cook out, and I wouldn't pay so much attention to the raw nutrition table for that. Look at the cooked nutrition yeah. table. The 90-10 and the 80-20 are very similar, but the 80-20 is going to taste a lot better. It's going to be a lot juicier. You're going to have to put less on it to make it taste better. Um, but the the highest fat content allowed by by the USDA for a burger is seventy thirty, mm-hmm. and seventy thirty burgers are are great, especially if you want a well done burger. Good point, really good point. If pink is is not your vibe, you need something to make up for that cooking. You're cooking away all the greatness. So you need a higher fat content. Great point. Yeah, a burger will not have any forgiveness um, if no. it's too lean and it's overcooked. Because then, what did you do? It's gray inside now. It's now gray. You're, you're, and... yeah, you're back in high school at the cafeteria. <laughs> you're back. Now, do you pre-salt? What's uh, when you're doing like a, an eighty twenty? I do. I pre-salt. There's something that that Chef Mike Lamonico taught me about pepper, which has changed my <laughs> it's changed my life because cooking is a comfort. Um, uh, experience and and um, and and obviously everything that you that you cook yourself at home for yourself is a comfort food, right? Um, but cooking with these high heats to get these sears really bitters almost all pepper, and yes, you know the big shakers of of pepper that come out to a table after are because. Most chefs know this, and they put the pepper on after. Yeah, it's an afterthought or after cooking process, not an afterthought at all. Very good point. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, last question: Are you putting anything on your your cheeseburger? Because obviously, there's only one choice. It's a cheeseburger. Well, you just said you just answered it in a way when you said cheese, and I'll give this to Josh Ozerski also. My whole life growing up, it was about, oh, what new, new cheese am I going to try on my burger? And some, we could all agree, don't fit. Josh said, Pat, why would you put anything but American cheese on a burger? Yeah. I think since he told me that that day, which is probably, you know, 2010, 
Uh, it's very rare for me to find, <laughs> it's very rare for me to have any other type of cheese on there because it just makes sense. And mm-hmm. everything he said was, 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 was right on. It was accurate. Yeah. So, it, yeah, I, so I, I do like if I'm going to put some tomato <laughs> on, I don't like those big tomatoes that taste like watermelon. Mm-hmm. I like little, um, grape tomatoes that they burst with flavor some will complain how hard they are to like split them or no, it's simple. Yeah. Um, not much though. A dollop of, of my Hellman's. Hellman's. Love it. Pat Lafrida, we're at 45 minutes in this conversation and we go to the Hellman's. Love it. That uh, is a choice. I mean, I'm, I'm for it. <laughs> I'm for it. You start with the mayonnaise. You're not talking about any of the Heinz products. Those <laughs> Heinz products. Keep those away from the, the burger. I, I'm I don't I don't need any of that uh, really that little dollop, little tomato yeah my pepper after and it's, I do salt it when I put it on the yep. grill, salting salting it too early or mixing it in can emulsify it yeah um, and you don't want your burger to taste like a ham so or or bratwurst no um, so yeah that's that's my formula but I just make sure that. If I'm reverse searing or or, or forward searing, I, I I am getting a sear because yeah. all that flavor is there. It's there. You need the caramelization. I mean, it's, it's it's part of the burger. You you can't it can't be like like soft and wan and just not. Yeah, and I'm not to get techy. So the caramelization is is a, is a great trick um, that we use, um, and I advise and consult many restaurants that. If you can't get a sear, which would be the Maillard reaction, which is a reduction of sugars, sprinkling some confectionery sugar, not enough to make anything sweet, does give you this great browning effect. Overdo it, it's going to turn black and taste like Mm -hmm. uh, s'mores. It's a very, very light dash. And where you don't have heat because of whatever restrictions um, exist where you're cooking, that little bit of caramelization is it does the same thing. I love that you've split the hair. You you split the difference between Maillard and caramelization because they're very different. They're the opposite, but you do add a little bit of fine confectioner sugar or not just fine sugar, confectionery brown, brown, which you have to make yourself usually. You have to make yourself wool. I've never seen it available. <laughs> it's a it's a good it's a good trick. Okay. On This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? I'm ready. The best morning pastry with coffee? Oh, croissant. The best dessert? Rainbow cookies. The, Done. The, Love that. The best bread? Good old-fashioned semolina from the old, the old world, which means from Brooklyn. <laughs> Your favorite cut of meat? Skirt steak, outside. Quick answer. You, you get that all the time. I love that. Skirt steak, do you feel like it, it's just versatile? Is that why you like it? Nope. It's it's the um it's the one cut of meat that no matter no matter what, it, it has its own flavor. Love it. Describe it, it. Inside skirt, which when you when you buy skirt steak, it'll normally just say skirt. It's very vague. You have to make sure it's outside skirt. Double the flavor, triple the flavor maybe, and tenderness. And um Worth worth the extra couple bucks for it. Your favorite cookbook of all time? The Joy of Cooking. Classic. You got to go there. Do you have a recent favorite cookbook discovery? One that you've you've recently seen? I I I I don't have a recent a recent one, but 
I, I will I will tell you, I think everyone one would be surprised. And look, I think I, I think uh, Americans love uh, to forgive. And my Mario Batali's books are still to me um, written with 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 the most of the most amount of thought and complexity in some cases, but it, you can follow through and you can achieve what what he achieved and what he wanted you to achieve in them. So I I, I really think any any of his books are are fantastic. Your favorite chef in America right now. I have to say that would be Matt Pollard from the Hogsalt Group in New York. Your favorite vegetable? Spinach. Goes well with so many things. Cooked raw. It's a good call. If it's done right. Done right. Can be done wrong. Last one, your favorite sandwich. Now, this changes all the time. But my favorite sandwich right now is a our take on a Reuben, which with pastrami and celery root slaw, on a press sandwich to die for. Yeah, it's a good one. I was eating one at the U.S. Open when a lady passed out in front of me and I had to decide between... <laughs> I was a, a medic in, in the Army and someone, instead of saying EMT, someone yelled, is there a medic? And I was like, but it's not a battlefield. Damn it, take my sandwich. And I tended to her. A little bit of heat stroke, you figured it out, you helped her. It was Got... a little worse than that. But oh, no, yes. she's okay. Mm-hmm. But she's good. She's good, all good. And then you get one back to the sandwich at the end. Uh, no, I, yeah, the next day. Got a new one. That's good. <laughs> Pat Frida, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thank you for having me. This Is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 